that she'll be reading from Zechariah 12, uh, verses 10 to the end, and then um, chapter 13, verse 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad-Remon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives." On that day, a fountain will be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Why don't you guys pray with me? Um, Thank you, Kathy and Elizabeth. Holy Spirit, we love you. And again, we ask that you illuminate your word to our hearts such that we're more likely to obey. That's the key, Lord. We want to be more likely to obey. And I say, say that with fear and trembling. Lord, help me to be more likely to obey. Let us as a church be more likely to obey after visiting a little bit with your word, by your spirit. Add faith to it, Lord. Add faith to our, our um, overcome our unbelief, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good to see you, family. Hello. <laughs> it's good to be together. Uh, I want to know something. I want to know. Um, what do you do when you've done something so bad that you don't know what to do with yourself? (laughs) When you've done something so bad that you don't know what to do with yourself, what do you do? Hide. Okay. When I was a little kid, I was playing Legos with my down-the-street neighbor. And we were both um, just kind of on our stomachs, kind of on opposite uh, opposite ends of our family room and um just like messing around i thought i would just toss the uh you know i had a lego you know the green plate it's like the bottom plate it's it's thin and yeah so i just pushed that i slid it to him but you know again we were face to face and of course it went right into his eye the corner of the thing went right into his eye and you know he's crying and he ends up you know we send him back home and um my reaction not so much hiding, but I just kept running up and down the stairs because I just felt so bad. I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, the report came back a few hours later that he had an abrased cornea. He had an abrasion on his cornea. And um, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was bad. You know, <laughs> there's a scratch of some sort. And I was just undone. I felt awful. He's okay. <laughs> he never lost his sight. He's actually had a great career at ESPN, and now he actually works for the NFL. Uh, doing some of their video stuff, and he uses his eyes. So praise the Lord. My point is, again, what do you do when you do something so bad that you just don't know what to do with yourself? For me, as a, as a little kid, that was, that was awful. Well, of course, the scripture that we're looking at today has a clue for us. And obviously the answer, you know, what do we do when, when we do something that's so bad? It's going to be in this person whose birthday we're celebrating in a couple of days. But I really want to look at the mechanics of it. How is it that God helps us deal with our badness. 
And I think what we're going to find is going to surprise us. I actually think that God has a great gift to give us today. And it's a gift that you uh, may not have expected to receive, but it really is a great gift from him. So let's look at that gift. Let's kind of unwrap it together by looking at Zechariah 12, the verses that Elizabeth just read. And I'll start, we'll hear it again. And let's, let's get it in us because it is, there's a lot of mystery to the scripture. Let's see what God would do for us as we open it up. <clears throat> Zechariah, this is 520 BC. The people are re-inhabiting Jerusalem and they are, they have started to rebuild the temple, but they're about 20 years into it and they're having some struggles. And this is what Zechariah is saying to them. He says, he sees a vision and this is what he shares. He says, I will pour out on the house of David. This is God speaking. I'm going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Everyone say grace. grace. Everyone say supplication. supplication. Supplication means to ask for mercy. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, house of Nathan and their wives, house of Levi and their wives, clan of Shimei and their wives, all the rest of the clans of their wives. And on that day, in 13.1, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. What is God promising here? What keys do we have about the coming Christ that causes us to rejoice even when we're like, oh, I've done something so bad, I don't know what to do with myself? The first thing I want to say before we really get into answer that question is, just, just can we just enjoy the fact that this is an incredible prophecy of Jesus? Again, this is 520 years before Jesus is coming, 550 years then before his death. And we have this thing that was hanging in history that someone was coming who was going to be pierced. And John the Apostle, who will write the Gospel John, and then who will uh, share for us the, the revelation that he gets, he's the one who picks up on this in his Gospel. It's in John 19 that, that John is telling the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And he tells about some soldiers who came to break the legs of those guys. You know, Jesus was crucified next to two others. And they came to break the legs. And the reason they do that was that they would die quicker. Because as soon as their legs were broken, then they wouldn't be able to lift themselves up to get another breath. So in crucifixion, the death is by suffocation. So they go to do that. They break one of the criminal's legs. They come to Jesus, and he's already dead. But just to verify his death is what it says in John 19. It says, instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. This happens so that the scripture be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken from Exodus, Numbers, and from the Psalms. But also, as another scripture says from Zechariah 12.10, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. I just, one of these kind of happy Bible moments where you go, God, you're awesome. It's such an incredible thing. Another fun thing for me, just saying, God, you're awesome, is this scripture also unfolds for us in the Old Testament, the Trinity. The idea that God is three in one. And this is how. And we really want to focus on Zechariah 12.10. Let's keep Zechariah 12.10 up there, really, for the most of our time. Um, and look at this. And I've kind of put it in italics on your purple sheet, if you're following on the purple sheet. First it says, I will pour out a spirit. Pouring out. Usually in the Old Testament, when God's pouring out things, he's pouring out wrath, condemnation, or judgment. 
But here he's pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication. That speaks to me, the Holy Spirit. And now look at this little pronoun problem we have, right? A lot of commentators, specifically the ones who don't know the Lord, they have a real problem with this. And they scratch their heads and go, I guess the writers made a mistake. Look at this. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Isn't that interesting? Did Zechariah, was he just um, dyslexic or something? You know, I don't know. I don't think so. Perhaps this is God giving us a clue. You know, they will look on me, it's kind of like God the Father, the one whom they've pierced, and, and look on him. There's the son. So in this little clue, we've got a little clue of the Trinity there. And I just want to throw that out there as a Christmas gift also. How's that? Thank you. Thank you, Neil. You can thank me later. <clears throat> Let's go back to our question. What do we do? How does this work? What are the mechanics of when I've done something so bad, how does God want to rescue me? How does God want to help me? And the first thing we look at is that God wants to pour out a spirit of grace. God wants to pour out grace. This is unusual. As I just mentioned, when God's about to pour something out in the Old Testament, it's usually judgment. So the fact that there's grace coming here is incredible. You know what grace is? Grace is favor. Favor. Gosh, the best way I can describe it is what I felt as a kid walking to my grandmother's house in Michigan. I knew that I had favor. It was summer. We were on vacation. Food smelled good. I know that my grandma was going to attend to my presence. She was happy that I was there. I was secure. I knew that the next week would be just fun in the lake with the boat fishing. I'd be going out to my favorite restaurants they don't have here, like Big Boy and, and um, a few other restaurants. I'd get a Verner's. You know, it's this um, ginger soda that they have out there that they don't have here. It was just going to be awesome. Favor. There you go. Shout out for Verner's. <laughs> Amen. Favor. Imagine if you walked into the RMV, right? And imagine if they said, would you just come to the front of the line? I know you have a, you have a problem with your license. Please, let me treat you like a human being. Come on in. Oh, put away your credit card. The Commonwealth will pay for this. Okay? Favor. Okay? So the fact, I mean, this pouring out grace is really unusual. And the thing is, what did Jesus say when he kind of offended people in the temple? He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he said, Hey, the Spirit of the Lord's on me. And one of those details, 61 2, is, And I will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The other reason why grace and favor is so important because there's a window of time in which it's going to happen. And that window will close. The same author, John the Apostle, who picked up on this scripture, Zechariah 12.10, being fulfilled in Jesus being crucified, is the same one who wrote in Revelation this. This is Revelation 1.7. He says, Look, he, Jesus, is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Okay, the next time that Jesus comes and the whole world sees him as the one that we've pierced because of our sins, we're all going to mourn. And that window of favor will have closed. We're in a special time. The time of Jesus, the time of the church. This is a special period of God's grace. And it will close. As we celebrate Advent, we also recognize Jesus' second coming. So, man, we got a window. There's grace. Now, what is this grace? Like, what is the nature of this grace? What scripture, or excuse me, what clues does this scripture give us about this grace? Listen to what he says. He says, they will look on me, 
the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The grace that God gives is a couple of things. The first thing that God gives us is he gives us faith. The, the grace that he gives us is faith. Notice that it says that um, they will look on me. They will behold me. They will look to me. And that's all. Does this remind you of an Old Testament story? Do you remember when the people of Israel had disobeyed and a plague was coming their way? And God's instructions to Moses were, fashion this snake out of bronze on a stick. And what do the people have to do? Do you have to go touch them with it? Do you have to sprinkle holy water on them? No, all that they have to do to stop the plague is simply look at it. And they'll be healed. And that's faith. Because that offends us. I don't know if you know that, but you want to work yourself into the favor of God. A lot of us want to work ourselves into getting validation from God. And God's saying, hey, the validation thing is settled. You just look to me. So grace that he gives is A, faith. And then B, and this is the surprise gift. Do you realize that the grace that God gives us is the grace to mourn? The grace that he gives us is the grace to mourn over our sin. It's a grace gift that he gives. And I want to unpack it a little bit here. But before I unpack it, I want to note the great lengths to which the Spirit of God, through Zechariah, explained the depth of this mourning. And why do you think he did that? He explains how deep this mourning is by giving two really powerful examples. The first is mourning as one would for an only son, for a firstborn son. And the fact, actually, that in the Hebrew there, it says an only son first is really emphatic. It's not just a firstborn son. The first reference there is as uh, an only child. And what that would call to mind to any Hebrew reader is Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that story? When God called Abraham to sacrifice his own son? When I was in seventh grade, one of my good friends, Ruthie, we were with each other in our youth group all the time. We were with each other in school all the time. Her mother was the director of music in Needham Public Schools. And her mother was also the director in our church, music. Ruthie's dad was the director of admissions uh, at Boston University School of Theology. During that seventh grade year, that fall of seventh grade, Ruthie had an older brother. And he was in 10th grade. He was a super kid. He was athletic. He loved God. He was musical. He was good looking. And at one of our football games, Mark collapsed on the field. Ambulance takes him away. They find out he has leukemia. And within 48 hours, he's passed away. I cannot begin to explain what it was like and what it has been like watching Ruthie's parents, Mark's parents, walk through the death of an only son. It's something you really never recover from. Now, they love God, and they're faithfully serving him, but you never recover from the death of a son, or a daughter for that matter, of a child. I remember times coming to, well, I, actually, I won't share. <clears throat> I'll just keep that. You just don't recover. We're pulled into this, weren't we? John mentioned today, I, I watched on the news yesterday, of one of the clips of the funerals, right, from Newtown. How do we feel when we think of a 
six-year-old whose life was taken at someone's bullet? What's the feeling that comes up? Isn't it an incredible sense of injustice? That's exactly what Zechariah is saying. That we'll look at Jesus, the one whom we've pierced, and we'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that the most beautiful creature of all creation, Jesus, the Son of God, who's totally pure, that it's my sin that pierced him. And we mourn. So Zechariah goes to great lengths to say, this is how intense your mourning will be. He, then he gives a national example. The whole reference there, the thing that goes kind of on and on, the bulk of the, the verse there about um, the whole reference to um, this Hadad Riman and the plain of Megiddo, it's most likely a reference to the time when the king, Josiah, was killed. The king of Judah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah at that time, um, Josiah, he was the last good king in a kind of dying legacy. The nation of Judah was, was in trouble. And Josiah was the last kind of bright, shining star among the leaders. He called the people to repentance. He led the people back into God and his, and his um, and obedience to God. But Josiah, he uh, disguised himself in a battle against the Egyptians, hoping not to be noted, but he took an arrow. And uh, the arrow went through his armor and he died. And when he died, the nation mourned because he was their hope for, for restoration. I wasn't there when JFK was shot. If you've ever been to the JFK library here in Boston, you know, the JFK library is about JFK's life. There's another museum in Dallas actually about his death. In the sixth floor of the book repository there is, um, is an incredible museum just dedicated to the still mysterious aspects of his death. But in the JFK library here in Boston, it's about his life, but they have one little hallway. Have you been there? There's one little hallway dedicated to his passing. And it is just the, the reel of Walter Cronkite saying, apparently, you know, JFK has died. You know, at 12, whatever it was, PM, I'm not sure. And man, just to see this anchor, this, this media, this kind of icon of, of American news media, to see him um, almost lose it. You know, he almost loses it sharing that the president has just passed away. The nation ends to, you know, we went into a great mourning in that, after that November of 63. Maybe we're more familiar with 9-11. Time of national mourning. My point is this. He's unpacking this greatly. Why, why do we think that, that Zechariah, that the Spirit of God, goes to great lengths to tell us how incredible this mourning should be about us beholding Jesus, the one whom we pierced? And I think the answer is this. It's because God cares about our hearts. He cares about your heart and he cares about my heart. And what I mean is this. I have a three-year-old son and I can make him obey me. I can do it pretty well. And sometimes when you're around me and you see me go into this mode, you'll see me go to the mode of, JD, do you want to do that or do you want to be disciplined? And I'll say, ah, you know. You know and he, you know, usually he chooses wisely and isn't disciplined. But, what, but what, what's happening that moment is I'm just getting J.D.'s behavior. I'm not necessarily getting his heart. But the joy for me as a parent is when we see the heart thing being transformed. When instead of just grabbing a toy from his little sister, he thought about it because he'd been disciplined a few times. And he, you know, he brings her a toy before grabbing it from her. You know, I don't know. But <laughs> there's some progress there with his heart. Okay. 
What about Kelsey and I? We can have an argument, right? And we can, one of us can win the argument. But honestly, until one of us kind of melts in tears and moves back towards each other, then we're just miles away from each other. God gives us the gift of mourning over our sin so it touches our hearts so that he gets not just a yes, sir, obedience, but a heart obedience. That's why it is a gift to mourn over our sin. That's why godly sorrow is a gift. What did David say after King David had committed adultery and murdered to cover it up? As he pours out his heart in Psalm 51, what does he say about a sacrifice for God? Does he say, hey, let me bring some more bulls. Let me throw some more lambs on the fire. No, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. It's why he gives us the gift of godly sorrow, of mourning over the one we've pierced, of mourning over our sin that pierced him. God wants our heart. The Apostle Paul picks up on this and he says it so well. In Romans 2.4, that's where he says this beautiful statement. He says, don't you realize that it's God's loving kindness that leads you to repentance? Isn't that awesome? It's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not just because God's a killjoy and he loves just putting you face to face all the time. Oh, by the way, this is how bad you are. You know, God doesn't get this sick joy out of putting a mirror up to you and saying, oh, yeah, you're awful. Yeah, you're pretty messed up and you're probably not going to change. No, it's the opposite. It's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance because he wants our hearts to change. He wants our character to be transformed. He wants us to look more like Jesus. So it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. I heard one Christian leader say that he just wakes up and he repents. First thing he does in the morning is, let me repent. What do I need to do? I need to change. Elsewhere, that's Romans 2. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul kind of outlines what godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow looks like. And it's such a good description because remember Paul's history with the Corinthians. The first letter he sent was kind of rebuke them. Say, hey guys, here's your sin. And it stinks. And it caused some, some tension between him and his church at Corinth. But then after they'd kind of repented, Paul writes this about them in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, this is 11 and 12. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. In other words, godly sorrow brings life. God gives us grace, and that grace is to mourn over our sin. Because you know what happens if we don't get to mourn over it? You know what happens if we don't return to God in godly sorrow? What happens is Judas, right? The scriptures tell us that Judas had great remorse over the fact that he had turned Jesus in. But where did it lead him? It led him to taking his own life. He never got to the godly sorrow. He never got to mourn over his own sin. Adam Lanza, you know, the perpetrator in this new town thing. Obviously, this man was disturbed. And I would say um, somewhere in there, I think behind every act of anger or aggression or terror, there's some real grief in there. And Adam never figured out how to grieve 
whatever he was losing, you know, whatever he lost of his own life. You know, as we're trying to put the pieces together of his life, we see a pretty disconnected kid. He didn't get the gift of sorrow over his own sin. So what I'm saying is, when we don't have the gift of mourning, we, we don't get that grace gift of mourning over the one whom we've pierced, we literally go crazy. It is God's gift to mental health that we can mourn over our sin. You know, because theologically speaking, what happens when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. Psychologically speaking, what happens is we separate ourselves from our true self. But when we're able to mourn over our sin, we're reunited with God. We also come back home to who we are, who we've met, been meant to be by, by God's grace. Amen? It's a grace gift. God is pouring out on us. In Jesus, he pours out grace And that grace is the ability to have godly sorrow to mourn over our sins. And lastly, so that leads us to supplicate. Okay, supplication is begging for mercy. The word picture is grabbing onto the stools of the chair, you know, to the legs of the chair. That's the picture that supplication paints. And that's a movement towards God, right? Judas didn't get to supplicate. Others don't get to supplicate, but God allows us in his mercy to say, God, please have mercy on me. Lord, I repent. God, I want to change. Help me. I need to be transformed from the inside out. That's the spirit that he pours out on us because otherwise we are just set apart from him and not able to make our way back to him. He gives us a spirit of grace and supplication. We can mourn over the one we've pierced. That's what gets us right with God. Amen? Well, Josh, I'm going to ask the team, you guys, to come on back up. And, um, and just a couple of things for us to think about. I, I just want to um, invite us. Um, I guess there's two main things I would invite you to think about. One is, if you're like me, <laughs> I just need this gift of godly sorrow again. In other words, there's places in my heart where they're just too hard. My heart is too hard in certain places. I don't need to work up tears necessarily or weeping. I don't need to work that up. That's not the point. But I do need God to visit me. And I, you know, I want to supplicate for the mourning. I need to ask God, God, please give me the gift of mourning over my own sins. Because my heart's too hard. Because I'm still disobedient in this area or that area. And maybe you're one step ahead of me there. Maybe you've already got the godly sorrow thing going on. You're already kind of convicted by the Spirit of God. I'd say just draw near to Him. You know, supplicate is a movement towards God. You move towards Him. You don't stay detached from Him or apart, but you move towards Him. And that's why I just want to, I know we're we're just a, we're many but mighty today. But hey, just know that the altar is open. If you're like me, you want to come and say, God, Give me the grace to mourn over my own sin, the one whom I've pierced, and gosh, just do it. Or if you're already there, if you're already mourning, just let God bring you back to him, you know? Greatest gift we could ever be given by God, the ability to mourn over our sins. It's what makes us right with him. It's wonderful. Our hearts as we mourn over the one we've pierced, as we realize that it's our sin that nailed him there, as we realize that it's so unjust 
that the King of Kings would be pierced through by my sin. As we get offended by that, the same way we're offended that six-year-old, six-year-old, six-year-old kids were mowed down. <clears throat> we come to God. Our hearts will belong increasingly to His. Our mental health will be secured as we mourn for the one whom we've pierced, as we move towards Him in supplication. As we were praying before the service, a few folks felt like God was speaking to them about what He wanted to do in this morning. One of them felt like that she saw a picture of an arrow and it was a good thing. And the arrow was hitting the target in someone's heart. And the implication there was that, hey, if God's targeting you, don't delay. Like, just respond to God. The second picture was that of a yoke, just like an oxen would have, that giant yoke. And she felt that um, God just wanted to take that weight off. And a similar picture to that was one of that God wanted to break chains off of people. But um, kind of a, a, a corollary to that image was that some people have some chains that are actually already broken, but they just haven't been taken off. So maybe you sit there and think, yeah, I, I have this chain. I know it's been broken by the power of God, but I still wear it too much. Come and just shed that chain, if you will, this morning. Another... Another one had a picture of just Jesus saying, hey, I've come for you. I've come for you. So if you are out there and you're just thinking that this, I'm, you know, maybe I've done something too bad. I'm beyond God's grace. And Jesus' word to you is, hey, I've come for you. And we also just had a physical word, and that is that if you have pain in your teeth or your mouth or your gums, I feel like God wants to heal that. This is good news. Christ's coming is good news because he gives us grace to mourn over our sins. It's the thing that other people don't have unless they have Jesus. And it's awesome. It's the best gift he could give us. Let's stand.